Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is titled, Outrageous Joy. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. When EMTs are dispatched to the scene of an automobile accident, to render medical assistance to an unconscious individual, the first thing they are trained to do is to check for uh, signs of life in order to determine uh, whether the person is living or dying or dead or alive. Uh, There are four primary vital signs that help first responders assess the patient's need. Uh, They are, first of all, body temperature, For the average adult, this should be somewhere between 97.8 and 99.1 degrees. Uh, Pulse rate would be the next one. The ideal heart rate for a healthy, resting adult is somewhere between 60 to 80 beats per minute. Uh, Respiration rate is the third vital sign that EMTs check. The normal respiration rate for an adult is between 12 and 20 breaths per minute. And then blood pressure. Uh, A reading less than 120 over 80 is considered healthy. An abnormality in any one of these four vital signs, however, uh, is uh, it helps EMTs then sort of start working down a path of diagnosing what might be wrong with the patient. Because all four of these vital signs are life-sustaining. They are the critical, most important functions that the human body has. Well, just as there are vital signs that help determine whether there is physical life in somebody, there also are vital signs that help determine whether there is spiritual life residing in someone. One such vital sign, according to the Apostle Paul, that he wants us and the Philippians to look at today is spiritual growth. I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Philippians chapter 2. We're continuing our series in the book of Philippians called Outrageous Joy. Also want to encourage you to take out the sermon notes that are in the worship folder you received when you came in this morning. And men, for you to especially fulfill your leadership role for your family by taking out your Bibles and following along. As you turn there, I'll just uh, refresh your memory and bring you up to speed if you've not been here recently on the book of Philippians. According to Acts chapter 16, the church in the Roman city of Philippi was planted by the Apostle Paul during his second missionary journey around 49 to 50 AD. About 11 to 12 years later, The Philippians heard that their spiritual father was now in Rome under house arrest, awaiting trial for preaching the gospel. Having been generous financial supporters of Paul's church planting ministry, uh, the Philippians dispatched their pastor, a man by the name of Epaphroditus, to go and do a welfare check on Paul in Rome. Paul, before sending Epaphroditus back to Philippi, penned this thank you letter called Philippians, Uh, to the church, and included in it some important instructions for some issues that they were struggling with. Our theme verse for this series that I think um, ties together everything that Paul's trying to to get at, or the main theme or point he's trying to make, is uh, Philippians 4.4. And it's where Paul simply says, uh, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Joy is the predominant theme in this letter. Now, throughout the letter, Paul basically implicitly tells us the secret to having outrageous joy is having the mind of Christ. Simply put, to have the mind of Christ means to see life and to think and to feel about things in life and in the world the way Christ does. The Apostle reinforces this uh, concept of our thinking influencing our emotions and perspective and behavior by strategically embedding the Greek word phroneo into each chapter of Philippians. 
Phroneo, you might remember, means to understand, to think, or to direct the mind. Obtaining the mind of Christ should be the desire of every professing believer because it is a sign of spiritual growth. Thus, our big idea for today is this. Spiritual growth is a vital sign of spiritual life. Spiritual growth is a vital sign of spiritual life. Just as spiritual growth indicates the presence of spiritual life, the inverse is also true. The lack of spiritual growth over time indicates the absence of spiritual life. Observable spiritual growth in the life of a professing believer is a non-negotiable in the New Testament for several reasons. First, spiritual growth is a sign that someone actually has received the indwelling Holy Spirit. The Spirit always desires the things of God, and the one thing that God desires is that his children grow. Secondly, uh, spiritual growth imparts joy into the life of the genuine believer. This is because their growth is bringing them closer to the only source of true joy, their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And, as many of you know, joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, as Paul says in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Thirdly, spiritual growth is vital to protecting church unity, because disunity is almost always caused by immaturity. Now, these last two reasons that I just gave for the importance of spiritual growth were especially important for the Philippians because Paul discerned they were lacking joy and disunity existed, as we learned a couple weeks ago, and their disunity was robbing them of their joy. And so as Paul is methodically working his way through this letter, blending in, mixing in theology with practical application, he transitions into practical application here after some rich theology last week in chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. If you would, look at your Bibles with me and follow along. I'm going to read verses 12 and 13. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Here's the first point on your outline, the first truth that Paul wants to teach us about spiritual growth. And that is, spiritual growth is a partnership process. It is a partnership process. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, as we saw last week, Paul saturates those verses with what scholars would call Christology. It's what the Bible teaches in several places about who Jesus is and what he's done. Well, then Paul transitions here in this passage today to practical application. And he does that by starting in verse 12 with, therefore. It's worth noting that the apostle uses this adverb twice in the first 18 verses of chapter 2. Uh, he uses it, first of all, in verse 9. If you look back at verse 9, he uses it to say, in, ex in, in essence, Christ was exalted as a result of him humbling himself. Now Paul uses this adverb again, in essence, to say, because of who Jesus is, as I just got done talking about, in verses 1 through 11, Every Christian should work out their salvation. Therefore, the adverb basically means because of this or for this reason. Now, this is another reminder that good theology should shape our behavior, and our behavior also reveals our true theology. You see, because if somebody doesn't manifest spiritual growth, 
in becoming more like Jesus Christ over time, they're revealing with their behavior they don't really believe who Jesus says he is, or they don't really believe in his word. Next, notice Paul says in verse 12, as you have always obeyed. He's affirming them in that they have demonstrated some growth, but his affirmation also says they should continue growing. They've, they've not arrived. Uh, no, no, no believers should rest on their laurels, uh, looking back on past growth, thinking, oh, I'm, I'm good to go. I could just hit cruise control until Jesus comes back. No, notice, notice how Paul says in, 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 verse, uh, in verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's not referring to a, a salvation for their souls. It's referring to working out what God has already worked into them. I'll explain that more in a minute, but he says to do it with fear and trembling, meaning with an urgency, knowing that Christ is coming back at any moment, and every believer will be evaluated and rewarded for what they've done for him. So spiritual growth is not something that should be procrastinated. It's not something that should be taken lightly. Instead, Paul says there should be an urgency to it. So, in verse 12, he says, you work out your own salvation. The original text literally reads like this, work to the finish or until completion. And as I said, since spiritual growth will always be incomplete until Jesus comes back and takes us home with him, we will always have work we need to do. Now, Paul is not saying work for your salvation. Nor is he saying work toward your salvation. And he's definitely not saying work at your salvation. He's trying to communicate to the Philippians and to us we should work out or live out what God has already worked into us if you've repented of your sins and trusted in Christ alone for your salvation. So the apostle's referring here to the effort that God expects his children to invest daily in becoming more like his son. This lifelong process of conforming our hearts and our minds and our lives to be more like Jesus is what theologians call progressive sanctification. Now this raises a logical question. Why? Does God want us to grow spiritually? Well, I thought you might ask that, so here's four reasons. Letters A, B, C, and D. Uh, letter A, spiritual growth makes us look like him. Spiritual growth makes us look like him. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, Paul says that those who know Christ have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And so just as natural-born children share some of the physical characteristics of their parents, the Lord wants to see the children he has adopted into his family look like they were a part of his family all along. So spiritual growth makes us look like him. Here's the second reason God wants us to grow spiritually. Letter B, spiritual growth proves we've been saved by him. It proves we've been saved by him. It is a vital sign or a metric proving whether someone has had the personal experience of being born again into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. In chapter, sorry, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, the Apostle John says, No one born of God uh, uh, makes a practice of sinning. Uh, John is, he's not saying that uh, uh, those that have been born again have to live a perfect life. That's not what he means. Instead, he's saying genuine, born-again believers no longer live a life defined by sin. 
the genuine believer hates their sin and loves holiness just as much as Jesus does. Thus, they want to get rid of their sin. They want to get rid of it because of what it cost Jesus on the cross. This is why John also says in 1 John chapter 2, anyone who claims to know him must walk as Jesus did. So John, in his letter, 1 John, and I, I preached a series on that last year that's still on our podcast and our website called Authentic Walk. You can check it out there if you want. But in essence, you might remember John basically says over and over and over again, real Christians really walk with Christ. They if you claim to know him, you must walk as Jesus did. And if you don't walk as Jesus did, and you're not growing spiritually, then you don't know him. And John says, you're a liar. He takes great offense, in fact, in his letter, 1 John, at those who claim to know Jesus, whom he loved dearly, but didn't walk with Jesus. Next, the third reason why God wants us to grow spiritually is letter C. Spiritual growth brings us closer to him. It brings us closer to him. In James chapter 4, James says, If you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. He then writes, Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. His point is that unrepentant sin creates distance between you and the Lord. Now, on the other hand, putting off sin in order to put on holiness allows us to get closer to the Lord. So spiritual growth brings us closer to him, and that, the Lord wants that. He wants a deeper, more intimate relationship with each of us. And fourthly, letter D, spiritual growth makes us useful to him. It makes us useful to him. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul is writing young Pastor Timothy, who's about 30 years old, and shepherding the church in the city of Ephesus, and he tells Timothy in the form of an illustration that he uses an illustration of dinnerware to explain how spiritual growth makes us useful to the Lord. Back in Paul's day, it was common for more affluent families to have two sets of dinner dishes. They had everyday dishes for common use, and then they had special china for special occasions. And the apostle, in essence, says... If we pursue a life of holiness in growing progressively in our walk with the Lord to become more like Christ, the Lord will use us for special occasions and assignments that he has. Just as a wife would use her special china. Now, thankfully, our spiritual growth it's not something we have to do under our own power because we would fail miserably. Instead, it's a partnership between us and the Lord. Look back at your Bibles with me. In verse 13, we now see God's part in the progressive sanctification process. Paul says, but also, it is God who works in you. God works as well. We are to work, and he will work. And I would add, he matches our effort. Paul uses the present active participle of the Greek word energeo, which literally means to energize. Verse 13 shows us the other side of the sanctification coin. The fact that God will empower believers to become more like Christ reveals the heart of a father who says, I know you can't do this on your own, but whatever I ask you to do, I will empower you to do because you can't do it without my help. The sanctification partnership is not only found here in this verse, in verse 13, but it also comes up throughout the New Testament. Here's just two other verses I'll give you real quick. Uh, for example, back in Philippians 1.6, if you would just look back at chapter 1, verse 6, that's where Paul says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. That's a reference to God's side of sanctification, his work in the believer's life. Okay, well, the other side comes out in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, where Paul says, train yourself for godliness. That's our part. Interestingly, the word train in 1 Timothy 4, 7 is the same word we get uh, uh, gymnasium from. It's gymnazo in the Greek. 
Uh, it makes sense because pursuing godliness is hard work. You have to discipline yourself just like you would if you decided to get in shape and start exercising and working out. But God promises to help us if we lean on his grace. This is perfectly illustrated for us at health clubs that have treadmills. If we were to get on a treadmill, the moving belt would not only help us keep pace, but also help us go further than we could if we tried to run on our own. However, if we stop walking or running on the treadmill, it's splat. And sadly, I've seen some people do that at the health club. It's, I feel so bad for them. It is embarrassing. Um, where they, they get start looking at their phone or something and lose track and boom, and oh, it's like, oh, I'm sorry. I don't know if I should help you or not, you know, but it's uh, like a cartoon character falling flat on their face, but sanctification kind of works that way. The treadmill and the runner work together. The treadmill helps the runner go faster and further than they could on their own, and so it is with us in the Lord. So spiritual growth is a vital sign of spiritual life, but it's not something we have to do under our own power. Look back at the text with me, and let's look at verses 14 and 15. Next, Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Here's the second truth about spiritual growth, and that is that spiritual growth has an eternal purpose. It has an eternal purpose. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, some translations I know say without complaining. This verse has been often stripped from its context and misquoted as, hey, you shouldn't complain about anything, and... Don't ever say anything negative. But here's what it really means. The word Paul uses for grumbling in the ESV, or complaining in some other translations, the word in the original text is a word that refers to murmuring, muttering, or grumbling done behind someone else's back. Or done in secret. It means murmuring, muttering, or grumbling done behind someone's back or in secret. Now, although we don't know uh, what the Philippians were grumbling about, it echoes back to the murmuring I mentioned earlier in this series that the people of Israel did back in Numbers 14. You might remember me mentioning a couple weeks ago during the unity message how in Numbers 14, the people of Israel got discouraged and afraid of the um, occupants in the, in the promised land, and as a result, started murmuring behind Moses' back, and then ended up getting sentenced to 40 years in the wilderness, because God was very disappointed in their lack of faith. Well, uh, whatever the Philippians were murmuring about, it was clearly eroding their unity by causing disputes. That's why it says do all things without grumbling or disputing. So we don't know if they were disputing and grumbling over the Lord's Supper, who got to eat first, or who got to serve it, or who was leading worship, or, or who was in leadership roles. We don't know. But it's clear that they had issues, and their murmuring was creating division in the church. Now, according to verse 15, their grumbling and disputing was also hurting their gospel witness. Uh, Notice it's here that Paul describes how they should be distinct by being blameless and innocent. Now, of course, he does not mean perfect, but blameless and innocent as opposed to, he uses the word for the world, the words for the world, crooked and twisted. Be blameless and innocent instead of crooked and twisted like the world. Now, with this stroke of his pen, Paul is just, and I I don't want you to miss this here, with the stroke of his pen, Paul is destroying one of the most prevailing lies in the American evangelical church today. And it's this. If Christians can be more like the world, more of the world will want to become Christians. 
Let me just say, dear church, that is a lie from hell. <laughs> it is so not true. That, that lie is causing martyrs over the last several centuries that gave their very lives and blood for the faith to turn over in their graves because they chose to not be like the world. But that is the lie being uh, perpetuated and spread throughout our country in numerous churches. And it absolutely contradicts the teaching of Scripture. Instead, we are to, verse 15, shine as lights in the world. The assumption here is that the world is dark and there's a need for light in it. And the Lord has called Christ followers to be the light. Obviously, this is also something that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. You are to be salt and light. To be a light means that we put Jesus on display for the world to see by giving him glory in everything that we do. Lights illuminate and they display things. It also means we help those who are lost in the dark to find their way to Jesus by sharing the gospel with them. Lights provide guidance. They show us the way. It also means we warn those who want to stay in the dark that Jesus is coming back to judge the world for their sin. Lights warn, just like the lights on the dashboard of your car. It comes on to say, there's something wrong under the hood. Well, in the same way, we should be lights in the world that wave the flag and wave the flashlight saying, hey, Jesus loves you and wants a relationship with you. He wants to forgive your sins. He wants to save you from the consequences of your sin, but he's coming back. And he's going to judge the world for their sin. So what is the eternal purpose of spiritual growth, as you see there in your outline in number two? And I, I want to make sure that this isn't missed, so I, I'm going to be as clear as I can. Clarity is something all preachers struggle with, and I, I work very, very hard at it, to be clear, clear, clear. And I ask the Lord to help me with this. I think the purpose is this. Our spiritual growth allows God to use us to impact lives and shape eternity with a credible gospel witness. On the other hand, spiritual immaturity gives the adversary ammunition to use for discrediting the gospel. For example, when churches fight like the Philippians did, the, the enemy just tells the world, see, those Christians, they have less fun and more conflict than your buddies, your drinking buddies down at the pub. You don't need them. Or, or say, for example, when Christians pursue unbiblical divorces, the enemy tells unbelievers who are struggling in their marriages, see, Jesus wouldn't have made a difference in your marriage anyway. So, the eternal purpose is our spiritual growth allows God to use us to impact lives and shape eternity with a credible gospel witness. One that's credible, as opposed to one that's discredited by our lack of growth and our love for sin. So, spiritual growth is a vital sign of spiritual life in a world that's dying for hope. Next, look at verse 16 with me. Paul begins to now provide some, some, some help on, well, how do we do this? What, how, how do we grow spiritually? So he says, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Here's number three on your outline, the third truth about spiritual growth in this passage, and that is that spiritual growth requires supernatural power. It requires supernatural power. Supernatural power is needed because changing the affections of the human heart is a supernatural work. There are at least three tools the Lord uses to do this work. First and foremost is his word. That's letter A on your outline. The word of God. 
In verse 16, the apostle tells his readers their spiritual growth begins with holding on to, or literally the the verb is holding on to or holding out the word of life. God's word is more than a book about the life of Jesus. It is a book so anointed by the Holy Spirit that it gives life to those who are willing to open their hearts and hear what it has to say. In John 17, 17, you see that reference there in your outline. Jesus prayed before he was to go and be crucified on the cross. He prayed to the Father for all disciples over all time. Father, sanctify them in the truth, the word of truth. So, what that means is that just as unbelievers have to hear the word of Christ in order to come to Christ, believers have to learn the word of Christ in order to grow in Christ. It is not possible to grow spiritually without learning the word. And here's something we seriously need to consider When we don't lay hold of the word and let it sanctify us, according to John 17, 17, we contradict what Jesus prayed for. He says, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Well, if we don't spend time in God's word, and if we don't take God's word seriously, if we don't open God's word when it's being preached, if we don't study it in our morning devotions, then we're basically saying, eh, I don't agree with Jesus' prayer request in John 17, 17. Eh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think he was right. Uh, or I want to find some other way to be sanctified. I just don't want to have to read the Bible. So the first tool is the Word of God. Next, letter B, the Lord uses His Spirit, the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter says his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Every genuine follower of Jesus Christ receives the indwelling Holy Spirit at the point of their conversion. Jesus says in John chapters 14 and 16, those are the two main chapters where Jesus taught on the Holy Spirit, He says the Spirit will help us walk with the Lord. The Spirit will enable us to understand the Scriptures. The Spirit will remind us of the Scriptures that we've already learned. And he goes on to say in chapter 16, the Spirit will convict us of sin, guide us in how to apply the truth of the Word, and show us how to glorify the Son. That's why one of the words that's used uh, for the Spirit in John 14, the Greek word is paraclete, or it means helper. Jesus calls him the helper, the Holy Spirit, dispatched to help all of us who know Christ do the will of Christ. So the Holy Spirit, it's worth noting before we move on, always seeks to glorify the Father and the Son, and he never, ever, ever, ever contradicts what God has already said in his word. Never. Ever. Never, ever. Never. Just want to make sure you got that. So there's the word of God, there's the spirit of God, and next there's the discipline of God, letter C. The Lord also uses discipline to help us grow. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son he receives. The passage goes on to say that there will be seasons in which the Lord either allows or sends pain into our lives for the purpose of helping us grow. Sometimes he gives us spiritual spankings because we've been disobedient. However, there are other times it's not that we did anything wrong, It's just that the Lord decided he wanted to use a particular season in our life to develop an area of our character. And so so you may find yourself in one of those seasons going, Lord, 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 what did I do, what did I do, what did I do? And you didn't do anything wrong. 
You were just walking with him, being obedient, and he's now going to refine you and help you take the next leap forward in your spiritual development. The Lord knows, and I sometimes think this says more about us than it does him, he knows that there is no better teacher than pain. And the fact that we need pain to make us grow says something about how stubborn our hearts can be. It also, though, does say something about the Lord. The fact that the Lord disciplines the ones he loves says he loves us too much to leave us the way we are. He has better for us. He wants better for us. Hebrews chapter 12 also says, being disciplined by him shouldn't be our greatest concern. Instead, we should be more concerned if we've never experienced the discipline of the Lord. Because it may mean we're not one of his kids. And all God's kids get spanked from time to time. The psalmist testified to this in Psalm 119, verse 67, when he wrote, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. He's personally testifying to how the Lord used pain and affliction to get him back on track spiritually and loving God's word. Next, let's look at verse 16, 17, and 18. Paul says, Hold fast to the word of life, so that the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Here's number four on your outline. Spiritual growth is a privileged partnership. Spiritual growth is a privileged partnership. If you're reading carefully and looking at the details, the words, so that I may be proud, might catch you off guard. What? What is... Is there such a thing as Christian pride? Because <laughs> Paul, he, he basically condemns pride in all his other writings and, and conceit and, and arrogance and, and tells us we need to put on humility. What's he talking about here? Well, we need to keep in mind that in Paul's other letters, he limited his boasting to just a, a couple of areas. Uh, first, he, he limited his boasting to boasting in the Lord, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31. To boasting in the cross, Galatians 6, 14. And boasting about his weaknesses, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. So if you feel compelled to be proud or to boast, I think you're safe if you can boast in the Lord, boast in the cross, or really talk up your weaknesses. The world loves, though, to boast about human power, strength, wisdom, and achievement. But what's interesting here is that Paul, and in his other letters, always boasted in a way that celebrated God's power, God's strength, wisdom, and achievements. Thus, he's in essence saying, Work out your salvation as God works in you so that when I stand before the Lord, I can know that all my hard work was not in vain. That me being in prison was not in vain. Grow spiritually so that, and he even hints at it here when he says, if I'm going to be poured out like a drink offering, that's him hinting at he knows he's going to be a martyr for the faith eventually. Grow spiritually. Work out your salvation so that my death is not in vain. Back when I was in uh, college, I remember after football practice uh, one day, 
uh, one of the senior captains gave a pep talk to, the, to our team. It was in-state rivalry, rivalry week. In just a few days, we'd be playing our in-state rival in front of a sold-out stadium. It'd be on television, and emotions would be high, and um, there was almost always at least one fight during the game. Well, we hadn't lost to our in-state rivals in about 15 years. We just had dominated them. And so this senior captain challenged the team to take their preparations seriously by giving a, a very passionate uh, pep talk with all the team and the coaches surrounding him on the practice field. And so he did so by, first of all, reminding them of all the past players who would be counting on us and watching the game, who had kept the streak alive. Uh, then he emphatically stated that uh, we aren't going to be the team that allows the winning streak to end. And then he urged the team to not take their practice time, or to excuse me, not to make their practice time a labor in vain by losing the game on Saturday. In essence, saying if we lose, then everything we're doing here, all the sweat and leaving our guts on the field and killing ourselves, was for nothing. And so he yelled, not on our watch. We're not losing to them. We're not going to be the ones that end the streak. Let some other team do that, you know. And I was remembering that yesterday, and um, I was thinking, you know, shouldn't, shouldn't we, as a church, have a similar mentality? Sh shouldn't we so have this mentality that we're not going to let Paul's imprisonment go to waste? We're not going to disappoint the martyrs who gave their lives for the gospel in the past so we could hear the gospel today. We're going to grow spiritually so that our generation isn't the one that stops the spread of the gospel and the growth of the Lord's church after 2,000 undefeated seasons. If you agree with that, it's okay to say amen in church, okay? <laughs> amen means literally I agree, so be it. So how, what do we do with these four truths about spiritual growth? How do we apply them? Well, here's a couple that come to mind. Again, the Holy Spirit may give you some uh, more personalized ones, and I would encourage you to write down anything the Spirit's telling you about how to apply this. Here's just two to get your... Uh, to, get, to, to stimulate your thinking. One, make a plan for your spiritual growth. Spiritual growth requires intentionality. And, and one thing that shocks me is just sort of how sort of apathetic or laissez-faire many Christians are about their spiritual growth. I'm sure you've heard the cliche, failing to plan is planning to fail. Well, there is some truth in that. Um, if you don't already, I want to urge you to, to designate a time and a place where you will meet with Jesus throughout the week. At least five days a week is what I've said. If you do five days a week, 30 minutes a day, in the Word and in prayer, you'll grow. If you want to go for seven, that's fine. But start with five to get a habit going. Um, you should have a specific time, specific place, what you're going to read in His Word, how long you're going to read it, so, for example, if you're going you're to read through the Gospel of John, one chapter a day, or if you're going to use Charles Spurgeon's morning and evening devotional, or something like that, because here's what will happen. If you don't plan ahead for your appointment with Jesus, when the appointment comes, you're going to sit down in the morning in your recliner at 7 a.m., and you go, well, I don't, I don't know what to do. It's kind of a big Bible. There's a lot of, a lot of pages. Oh, well, I guess I'll just go to work. So you need to plan ahead, just like you would be meeting with your boss or something. You need to get ready for that meeting. Uh, because Jesus is a real person who desires a real relationship with you, you should make a real recurring appointment with him and plan on what you're going to do. And, of course, if you need help, I, can, I would love to help you. I've got tons of ideas and resources I can share with you. Uh, to help get you started there. Next, uh, number two, recruit accountability. Uh, if you need to, invite people 
other believers to help you with this. The Lord never intended for us to grow alone, but rather to pursue intentional spiritual growth in the context of loving, accountable relationships. I have found in my own life that if I really was serious about a goal, I needed to tell someone about it and give them permission to ask me about it. And just, just knowing that I was going to be asked helped me find the discipline I needed to achieve the goal. Just like in school, if you know the final exam's coming and the date is on the syllabus, you'll pay attention in class. So when it comes to making a habit to do the spiritual disciplines, I suggest inviting someone to ask you about your personal devotion times from time to time, or you could ask them to go through a book with you and then periodically chat. Um, hey, what did you learn in John chapter 5 this week? Did you notice this? And you could share things with each other. That can be mutually edifying. Or just ask, hey, what are you reading in God's Word? I heard you're going through Tozer's devotional. I'm going through Spurgeon's. What, 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 what are you, what's, what's Tozer saying through God's Word to your, actually, I should say, what's God saying through Tozer in his Word to you? So recruit accountability. Well... Back in the 1800s, there was a prominent atheist in Great Britain named Charles Bradlaugh. He publicly challenged the Welsh Methodist minister, Hugh Price Hughes, to a debate on the validity of the Bible. In order to put pressure on his opponent, Bradlaugh even spread the news of his challenge throughout the country. Believing a debate would accomplish nothing, the very wise minister, uh, Hugh Price Hughes, responded with this. And this is a long quote, but bear with me. It's worth every slide. He says to his atheist opponent, I propose to you that we bring some concrete evidence of the Bible's validity in the form of men and women who have been saved from lives of sin and shame. I will bring 100 such men and women saved by hearing the Bible, and you bring 100 people who have been changed by atheism that denies the Bible. If you cannot bring 100 to match my 100, I will be satisfied if you bring 50 men and women who will stand and testify that they've been lifted up from lives of sin and shame by the influences that deny the Bible's teachings. You know, if you cannot bring 50, I challenge you to bring 20 people who will testify with shining faces, as my 100 will, that they have a great new joy in a life of self-respect as a result of your teachings. You know, if, if you cannot bring 20, I'll be satisfied if you bring 10. Better yet, if you cannot bring 10, I challenge you to bring just one man or woman who will make such testimony regarding the uplifting influence of your teachings. And according to record, this challenge, which was made known all over England, was never accepted. Your spiritual growth proves that God exists to those who believe he doesn't. It also proves there is new life living within you because spiritual growth is a vital sign of spiritual life. So how are your vitals looking today? Would you join me as we close in prayer? Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you that atheists do not have the abundance of evidence uh, 
that we do. We thank you, Lord, that your word is so powerful. There are thousands of people across generations who have been changed by the same message that Jesus Christ died for sinners, was resurrected three days later, and offers forgiveness and salvation to anyone who would repent of their sin and by faith trust in Christ alone for their salvation. We thank you, Lord, too, that you love your children so much that you don't let them stay the same. You want them to grow. Because, Lord, you're so infinitely wise. Thank you, Lord, that you want us to grow so that we can cast off the sin that got us into a mess in the first place. The sin that separated us from you. So, Father, I want to pray for those that are here today that um, maybe have struggled to grow. Lord, would you show them, first of all, whether they know you, whether, whether they have the indwelling spirit in them? Because we know, Lord, from the scriptures that people are innately religious. They, they, we, we will try to be religious in our own strength without the resources of the Spirit. And Lord, for those who have been generally born again, who maybe have been trying to grow in their own strength and have not relied on your grace and your Spirit, Lord, please would you show them how to do that, how to partner with you. Show them, Lord, how to partner with you through the spiritual disciplines. so that they can grow deeper and go farther than they ever could have gone on their own. Finally, Lord, please, would you help us as a church to, as Paul said to the Philippians, to shine like lights in the darkness. Would you help us, Lord, to to show our region that there is a better way Would you help us, Lord, to lift high the name of Christ, to hold forth the word of life more than we would hold forth our political preferences and our opinions? Help us, Lord, to get the message of hope in Jesus Christ out there on social media and out there in our spheres of influence so that we can see others be born again and grow as well. We love you, Lord, and we thank you that your mercy is more. We thank you, Lord, for loving us when we didn't love you. We thank you for your patience and for enabling us to do what we could not do on our own. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.